welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to listen. I got a very special guest today. He's a successful businessman, an Air Force veteran, an author, and he also happens to be my dad. But uh, this episode is obviously going to be a little bit different than a lot of the previous episodes because I've interviewed a lot of musicians. Uh, but I have had a few authors on and I plan to have more on. So this is really just a preview of things to come. But today's episode especially will be a big departure and we're going to get into some heavy topics with author Roger Shute. His book is called Ultimate Reality and uh, explores some very deep questions like where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going in this afterlife? And Ultimate Reality it means basically that there is more to the world than meets the eye. We, we can only see so much right here in this present reality. So for this book and this interview, first and foremost, you have to have an open mind because we're going to be talking about, you know, what is this ultimate reality, how it manifests itself, as well as things that may seem like coincidences, but they may be signs of this ultimate reality. And we're going to talk about the misconceptions of evolutionary theory we're going to get into consciousness and how deep that goes, as well as altered states of consciousness. And finally, death and what happens after death. My dad has done a lot of research on this subject. 496 sources he's used. So this is not just some made up theory. He's quoting philosophers, psychologists, medical doctors, physicists, and much more. So I found it fascinating. But again, I do warn you, you got to go into this episode with an open mind. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Roger hey. Shoot, to the Chuck Shoot podcast. It's weird. I don't know if people notice, but we have the same last name. Yeah. There's a, what a coincidence. Yeah, it's Is a coincidence. that a synchronicity? No, I don't want to uh, try to fool people. But yes, you are my dad. But you are also a brilliant author. And so we'll get into the book you've written here. It's called uh, Ultimate Reality. And we will get into that in a little bit, but I do want to hear a little bit about your background. I want people to hear that because I think your story is interesting and it kind of helps explain how you got into these topics and the, you know, the, kind of the basis for your book in some ways. Uh, my dad died when I was 13, but he walked out of the house to go hunting and that was the last I saw of him. And then um, the morning of my sister's birthday or 11th birthday, my mother woke me up and told me that my father was dead. And, um, and the, the way I relate this to the book is the book is titled Ultimate Reality. And I talk about it, the door of perception, uh, kind of a, uh, a barricade, if you will, uh, uh, you know, a veil, if you will. And, and, and that event to me was uh, an eye opener because my dad was not there anymore in the perceptual world. And I kind of like, I felt like I'd smacked right up against this this door of perception. But, I mean, he was somewhere, but he wasn't. Yeah. There. But wasn't he kind of not there anyways? Like your parents were, you grew up in a dysfunctional family. Your, your dad was an alcoholic. And then it was interesting because your mom was not an alcoholic, but then when your dad died, then your mom became an alcoholic. So you just had that constantly running through your whole family for your whole childhood. And it was just very dysfunctional, right? Yeah. You don't realize, you know, when you're living it, um, and I suppose a lot of people that come out of an environment like that don't realize how dysfunctional it is till you run into somebody like your mother. Yeah. Who has a very functional, a, a normal, a, a normal. Cause See, to you, that was normal chaos was and normal. running around and, and people being drunk and passing out and, and just in poverty. I mean, wasn't your mom a welfare? I mean, it was not a very pretty picture. No, it wasn't, but you know, that's, um, 
and I don't I don't mean to uh, harp on that too much. But the thing was, I was a very precocious child, and I had a lot of interests, and I was very curious about a lot of things, and that was not encouraged in in the mm. household because neither my mother or father had any experience with children, mm. and they really didn't recognize what I consider to be my gifts. I mean, I was venting things, writing stories, coloring. Did you read a lot as a kid? I did. I read a lot as a child and, uh, and none of that was encouraged. And so let's skip from, you know, my dad's death, which had a traumatic effect on me because um, I then realized there was not a Santa Claus. And I put it in that kind of a term because before you first experience a death, you know, everything's just like, you know, the sun's coming up, it rains, it's cloudy, it's sunny, you know, Christmas comes, Easter's, you don't, all of a sudden, you realize like, what the heck are the rules for this thing called mm-hmm. life? This doesn't make any sense to me. And then it was, you said that when you were in the military and you were uh, so doing, I was in the military, yeah, you're in the military, in the, military in the air force and you're doing military police. And that gave you a lot of time, downtime to kind of think. And that's when you kind of started thinking more about this kind of stuff, about the deeper meaning of life and all that. Right. Yeah. Let's go to the military. I was in the, in the jungles in the Philippines. Um, you know, you'd be there in the middle of the night. Uh, work in the midnight to eight o'clock shift. And uh, as long as nobody was trying to sneak into the, and do anything terrible. Yeah. You still you have a job have a to do. Time. Yeah. Yeah. You had a lot of time to, and I, I came up with all these theories and I thought, you know, I didn't understand. I didn't ever heard the word philosophy. It wasn't taught in the high school that I was in. And so I didn't realize that there's a whole uh, genre of thinking under this title of philosophy. And that didn't dawn on me until I came back from the service, went to school on the GI Bill. First uh, quarter I took in school, philosophy professor, um, Dr. Devon Edrington, um, he told us the first day of school, he said, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in this class. And at the end of the class, if you can understand, at the end of the term, if you can understand what I believe, what I think, then I failed. So he didn't want to tell us this is the way it is. Re- mm-hmm. Repeat it back to me. Right. He said, you, you come up with your own ideas. You write a defense of it. And if you can successfully do that, you're going to get a good grade. So he, I really, we did come to the end of the quarter and I thought, okay, I'm going, I'm moving on. I'm going to another class. Please tell me what you think. Yeah. Your, did he ever sorry, tell you? He wouldn't do it. Even oh. then. So, um, you know, it's anyway, that, yeah, I was just going to say, stimulate. go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, it was another interesting thing that you told me before about uh, school and college, how driven you were. I don't know where this drive came from, but you told me that you were so driven, you wanted straight A's in every class, and that you would go up to your professors and you'd say, how do I get an A? And they would say, I haven't given an A in 5, 10, 20 years, whatever it may be. And you're like, well, I'm getting an A, so how do I do it? And you'd find a way, they would give you all this extra work to do, and you would get an A. Yeah, I got an A in every class. And, and you graduated uh, valedictorian. Yeah. I, uh, yeah University I of Washington. Summa, summa cum laude. And uh, I got a, I was, I guess, invited into Phi Beta Kappa. I didn't even know about that. Um, but I got a letter in the mail. And so I, did, I looked up later. You had to be recommended for Phi Beta Kappa by a professor. And I never found out who recommended me. But mm. I'm, in, I'm a member of Phi Beta Kappa. And uh, yeah, so... Um, I got the straight A's, but I was driven because it started off. Um, I was really curious, just like I said, mm-hmm. I was able to take that curiosity and channel it into school. And I found most of the classes I took, I was, I had a double major in philosophy and accounting. 
Right. And I had to make a decision at one point, you know, am I going to be a philosopher unemployed or am I going to be an accountant? And I chose to do the accounting, but I took enough philosophy classes to qualify for Phi Beta Kappa because it's a general, it's a liberal arts um, organization. So then at that point, philosophy was more kind of just a hobby. Like you're reading books on the side as kind of just in your spare time. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of spare time as you know, because, uh, Started a, started a CPA firm, which is still in existence today, and uh, then later started an investment advisory firm to service mm-hmm. the clients of the CPA firm. So running two companies at the same time didn't leave a lot of extra time. But um, as soon as I was able to, I began to you know spend more and more time on my the thing that really interested me that I thought was the important thing to do with my life. And uh, in doing that, I wound up getting a first went to graduate school in. Uh, uh, archaeology at the University of Leicester in Northern England, and uh, was working on a proposal for a, a doctorate degree. And uh, it was approved by my professor, but the school wouldn't allow me to uh, be admitted to the doctoral program because they re- had changed the requirement. You had to work in the field of archaeology. That was not one thing I yeah, wanted to right. do. I'm kind of the guy that uh, Indiana Jones says, most of the work is done in the library. You want to be in the library. You want to be in the library, and that's where I wanted to be. But before that, that, wait, can we back up, though? So like you said, you had the accounting firm and the financial advising, and and you were very successful. I think, you know, I know you want to be humble, but you're very successful with both these things. But this was not your true passion. This is interesting to me because, I mean, I interview a lot of musicians, and they love music. And some of them are successful, some of them not, you know, varying degrees. But you were very successful at something that really wasn't your passion, how did you find success in that field when that really wasn't even your number one most favorite passion? Well, I get passionate about anything I do. So the thing is, just like I did in school and getting A's in classes that weren't necessarily interesting to me, yeah, because my passion was to be to, to do the most excellent to work get success to be successful or to win or to just to to realize my potential. You know, okay. to go as far as I could. I couldn't. I I could never find the way to. Um, rationalized myself that it was somebody else's fault that I didn't do well. And, you know, I heard that a lot in school. People say, well, you know, the professor's an asshole and, you know, he mm-hmm. did all this stuff. And that's why. I and I always thought I got to put it on me. So I don't get the grade. It's on me. It's not on the professor. Well, so, and especially when you have a business, who are you going to blame then your partner? Yeah, yeah, I guess. And the thing is, you know, I, once you take on clients and that was a professional relationship, um, you've got a responsibility. These people are trusting you and they're depending on you. you can, so you do that business again, you're successful. You're, you know, you're, you're reading about philosophy and some of this stuff in your spare time as we, you know, the kids get older, I think you have more time. And so then you retire and this part is fascinating. And then, like you said, you, you get into this archeology span and stuff, but it's just fascinating that you retire from business and accounting and all this. Most people that retire, they go fishing, they go to Hawaii. They, you're getting advanced degrees in archeology, span philosophy, and psychology for fun. You don't need the money. You don't need to, this is just for fun. I don't know that many people that do that. Yeah. I, you know, it's almost like, you know, I, I'm not sure fun is the right word. I just say that <laughs> okay. I just had to, because there's stuff I didn't know. And I had to find out okay. what, what, what is the answer to all these questions from the day my dad died. This is all coming back to me. What is this uh, thing called life and what's, what's it all about? And so Archaeology, um, you know, uh, anthropology, getting into, uh, you know, prehistoric civilizations was of interest to me. 
when that didn't pan out, I couldn't get a doctorate, which was my goal to get a doctorate. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I went into uh, philosophy and I went to the University of Wales in uh, Lampeter, Wales, and went there several times and uh, picked up a a certificate. And so I got a a graduate certificate in archaeology and a graduate certificate in philosophy from the university of Wales. Are those related somehow? Like is your interest in archaeology, is that just totally different? Like if you're interested in sports or something, or is that some kind of, somehow related to some of the themes in the book? Well, it is, it is because it, it all has to do with where do we come from? Like, you know, that's the question. Okay. Where do we come from? What, what are we doing? Where do we go? And those are all quite fields that would investigate that. And so that was the reason that I wanted to uh, pursue that. And actually the, the, the thesis topic I had for my archaeology doctorate was going to be on when did we first manifest consciousness, uh, you know, as as the human species. That was going to be my my endeavor, and uh, and my the professor that was overseeing me approved that as a topic because I have you know voluminous research that mm-hmm. I've done to show that I was going to structure this right, but uh, I was you know shut off from pursuing the PhD and I wanted to get a doctorate. So then I went to they they said they had one at Wales, University of Wales. And then just about the time I got that certificate, the postgraduate certificate, which is all the coursework to get the doctorate, uh, the school basically went bankrupt. It was the 2008 crisis and uh, public institutions, everybody was failing. And so I was kind of left like, oh, now what do I do? Then I found University of Philosophical Research in LA, which uh, I was the last graduate of that of that program because of, of funding problems, but this is the greatest program I'd ever been in. And most of the professors that I had during that two and a half year period were people that had written the books that were in my library. So it was just an honor That's for really me to cool. study. Them. Yeah. yeah. So then when did you start writing the book and what prompted you to do that? Well, again, uh, when I went to the university of Wales, we met with one of my professors there at a chess club in London, um, your mom and I, and, I told him what my uh, goal was to get a doctorate. And he said, he had a doctorate, of course. And he said, uh, don't, don't do that. He said, you're just going to put yourself through all this agony. And I said, well, then if I'm not going to get a doctorate, I'm going to write a book. And he said, yeah, do that, do that instead. And so when I got back and I thought, well, I need to get that master's of psychology to have a credential to write the book. And then I went on to the, uh, University of Philosophical Research in LA and got the uh, Master's of Transformational Psychology. And while I was doing that, of course, there was a lot of papers being written. And doing the papers uh, was a lot of the research, the ground level research that I did that wound up in some form being incorporated into the book. And the book is, you also say that it's written for your kids and your grandkids to have those questions that they may have answered for your perspective, at least. So if they ever wondered, like, what did you think of this or that, they can read the book and then they'll know your thoughts on all the subject matter. Yeah, well, so uh, that's one thing that I was denied the luxury of, and that is ever finding out what my dad's thoughts were about this stuff. Right. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want you, our children, your moms and I have children, and I don't want my grandchildren to wonder, what did, how did grandpa look at this? What did he think about yeah. this? So that was part of the the background, but I did want to get the book done. And then I, I think we talked about this the first time is that uh, I wound up with cancer. Yeah. And then uh, that your like, fear okay, was your fear of when you got cancer, your fear was not of dying. It was not being able to finish the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I, when I think if people read this book seriously and uh, study its contents, 
hopefully they'll come away with, uh, they'll, they'll lose their fear of death. And, uh, so you don't have a fear of death anymore? Well, no, I don't, I don't have a fear of death. Um, and I think when they read the book, they'll, it'll be obvious to them why there's just so many mysteries. And, you know, one of the things in there, I think I talked about, uh, talked to you about this with Socrates in, uh, he was sentenced to death and he had to take, uh, a poison and, mm-hmm. uh, his, his buddies came to him when he was awaiting his, them to carry out the death sentence. And they said, hey, we've got money and we can pay these people. We could spirit you out of here. And he said, you know what? Going against the law is wrong. It's evil. But he said, dying, we don't know. We don't know. That could be the greatest thing in the world. We don't know. Yeah. So he said, I'm choosing between doing something that I know is evil and taking the punishment, which may not be so evil. And so that's really kind of the philosophy that I have is that, you know, uh, you want to lose your fear of death or at least, you know, have it not be monopolizing your life so that you can live a really full life. Right. Which you have done. So, well, let's get into the book then. Um, so it's called the ultimate reality. Again, I've got my copy right here. Everyone should pick it up. Um, but it was interesting. I, I, I finished, I finished the entire book yesterday and this was a good quote that was actually in the afterword, but I feel like this should be at the beginning um, because it says, you know, people have pre or I think people have pre misconceptions of a lot of these things. I might, we might have already lost some listeners from some of the stuff we've said, but because I think some people either believe very strongly in a religion or they are strongly atheist, which is also, I mean, it's like both camps, like you really need to open up your mind for this book because you say this book seeks to neither prove nor disprove the existence of any particular God, not the truth or falsity of any particular religion. Yes, that's true. And then the first chapter that takes us to the first chapter, which is on belief, truth, knowledge. And uh, that's one of the big problems in in the world today. And I think you would agree with me is that people adopt a belief and they're, they're just entrenched. They're not going to change their belief. Mm -hmm. They don't want to know what you think. They want to tell you and convert you to their belief. And so what I think, what I suggest in the first chapter is maybe, what uh, people should do is take their beliefs and then argue with themselves the other side. They should do the research like, why would somebody be anti-global warming when I firmly believe global warming is a reality? And find out what it is about global warming that people that don't adhere to that, what is it that they see that you don't see? And then at least you'll understand where they're coming from. You may not change your beliefs. Um, But also, you know, again, on the belief thing, I suggest in there that we shouldn't even have a belief in something if we don't need to take action, because once you adopt a belief, you stop yeah. assimilating new information. And uh, that, that's a that's a real problem. It's really hard to say don't have a belief in things. But if you don't need to do anything, just take the belief, just take the information in, let it sit there, take new information in. And then when you do have to take action, you'll have more information available to you to make a better decision. Yeah. You say your goal is not to challenge uh, or sorry, your goal is to challenge beliefs, not necessarily change beliefs. And then you talk right. about like people being either too gullible and uh, excessive wearing or having excessive wariness or denial. You, you kind of want to be in the middle. You want to be open to new ideas, but also be skeptical. You don't want to just go, okay, I believe everything in this book, hands down. But you also don't want to say everything in this book is BS. You got to kind of be in the middle and be able to make up your own mind about it. That's exactly right. And the whole idea of the book isn't to convince anybody one way or the other. It's to point out, hey, this is what the paradigm is, the materialist paradigm. 
And here's the other side of it. And the problem is that a lot of the work that's done by these people who have uh, who I've drawn upon, um, a lot of those people were punished basically either fi- uh, financially or career-wise because they have these beliefs. And uh, one of them, of course, that I, I mentioned in the book is Rupert Sheldrake, who wrote a book called The New Science of Life. And he's a PhD from Oxford. He's not a slacker. You know, he's a, uh-huh. he's a really smart guy. And he thinks outside the box. And he wrote this book. And the uh, editor of Nature magazine, which is one of the most respected uh, professional magazines, um, re- looked at his book. And his conclusion was it's a book worthy of burning. This is from somebody who's supposed to have an open mind. Yeah. He didn't say things like there's a lot of issues in this book that need to be investigated further. He said, no, the book should just be burned. And I was just appalled to read that. But that's a, that's an example of the closed mindedness you run into when you think outside the box. You know, and I think we talked about this in the, when we were talking about this the other day, is that um, we have a lot of relatives that are educators. And I don't profess to know anything about teaching. But when I was a child, I, a young person, I think I would really have appreciated for the teachers to tell me, okay, we're going to teach you what's in the box, but then we're also going to teach you to think what could be wrong with what's in the box. Mm-hmm. You know, come up with some alternative ways of looking at things just to stimulate your uh, creativity and your imagination. Um, but Rupert Sheldrake's just one example. I use him as my poster boy because he just takes so much abuse and he's he's not he's not in it to make money. He's in it because he really believes in what he's doing, and he's got some some solid foundation for his. Work. Yeah, no, sounds like you. So let's talk about also what is because people are probably wondering what is ultimate reality. What does that mean? So your definition is it's ultimate reality, or the term hidden reality, or a divine realm. Is that also maybe is it kind of like a fourth dimension? Like what what is that? How do you describe what this is? Well, so that's a good question, and that's uh, that's the mystery. We know that there's a non-perceptual world. In the second chapter, I talk about ways in which this non-perceptual world manifests mm-hmm. in our perceptual world yeah. through, through a couple of different ways. But um, we can't know too much about it because we're not living in it. We can't perceive it. But we can see how it manifests in our objective everyday life. So to tell you what it is, it's a hidden realm behind the world of perception. It's what Aldous Huxley referred to as behind the doors of perception. And uh, if you ask me one thing that I do believe in is that I believe in there is this ultimate reality because everything I've researched and looked at is just points to this. And uh, the book supports that. And uh, so one of the people that you mentioned, Paul Daves, who's a physicist at ASU, and and he's open to the idea of a hidden or divine realm. He says there's some foundation for its existence, whether it's a God or logic or a set of laws or some other foundation for existence. He says through his scientific work, again, this is scientific. He's come to believe that the universe is put together in an ingenuity with an ingenuity is so astonishing that he can't merely accept it as just a brute fact. In other words, it's so perfect that it couldn't have happened just by accident. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it happening by you're going to get me laughing in the aisles again. I'll probably yeah. you'll probably have to mute this program if you keep talking about but it's so ridiculous to me that somebody would say we've got this glue, this glob of uh, uh primordial goo and we're going to mature into these people who have all these abilities and artistic abilities and sensories and they can smell and they can see and they can touch and feel and they can feel love. And this all came from this thing of glue and it's all by 
just uh, an accident. You know, it's just uh, obviously Paul Davies, who I cite in there several mm-hmm. times in the book, sees it the way I do. And that there, we don't know what it is. Yeah. We can't really say, well, but and we the, know that it does. It. And then you said Sheldrake and uh, Kurtz and then David Baum. He's a, is that how I say Baum? Theoretical oh, physicist? David Baum. Baum. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was at Birkbeck College. And uh, he, he came. What up is the a same theoretical thing. physicist? What does that mean? What? How, how did he well, study he's this? Not, he's not looking to employ the things in some kind of a productive capacity. You know, making something. He's not trying to make nuclear bombs. He's okay. exploring it from a strictly a theoretical standpoint. Um, and he was a brilliant guy, and he wrote many books. And some of them are really tough to to wade through. But um, yeah, he he. Uh, yeah, he made this statement. He said, particles have to be taken literally as projections of a higher dimension reality, which is something that I call, you know, the ultimate reality. And he can't, he said, it can't be accounted for in terms of any force or interaction between them. I mean, it's just, it's just something that's unknown, but it's a reality. And this, so this, okay. And then another really smart guy that you mentioned several times in the book, Carl Yoon, a psychologist, he talks about a couple different things. First of all, the collective unconscious that we're all linked in some way. And, um, you know, there's the analytical psychology and the, you know, there's part of this world that we can't see a realm of reality is invisible with non-material things. So he kind of believes in this, uh, phenomenon of a ultimate reality as well. And then he also talks about, um, your whole uh, third chapter synchronicity and distinguishing that from coincidence. So how do synchronicity and coincidence differ? So that's, that's a good question. And, and honestly, I think that, um, it's difficult to define synchronicity. I know Jung does. He says it's uh, an inner event, an outer event connected by meaning. But um, I look at serendipity and I look at seriality, which was a guy named Cameron came up with that idea. And um, coincidence could be just this one-off thing. You know, mm-hmm. this happens and something else happens. It's just a coincidence. It has no, no, no visible meaning that you can tell. When you have a bunch of events like the thing that happened with the Nixie Knox story. Yeah, so explain uh, that. I know you talk about this in the book, but yeah, explain the Nixie Knox thing. This is kind of your example of synchronicity. Yeah, so so the Nixie Knox story is kind of interesting because it involves you. Uh, I was working on a paper in psychology, and uh, I took a break and I did a crossword puzzle, a New York Times crossword puzzle, which is one of my hobbies. And uh, there was a word that I didn't understand. I mean, I, I got this word because I got all the words that went across. I got all the clues that went across, but I'd never seen this word before. And that word was Nixie. And I thought, what is that? So I looked it up in the dictionary and it, it's a mis- piece of misaddressed mail. It was called a Nixie, which I didn't know. So I learned something there. So then a little bit later, I was working on this psychology paper and I ordered a book by Jung um, to supplement this uh, the research I'd done. And as it is with Amazon, they give you the opportunity to to read it before you get the book. And so they sent me uh, the pages on a Kindle and I could look at the book. And the first thing I turned to was a, a statement uh, from Jung uh, where he refers to it as uh, he refers to it as a, it's kind of the, the, the he says it's he calls it the uh, the feminine, it's the anima, as you remember from psychology classes. Um, he means he means it's a, an instinctive version of the anima is a Nixie. And so okay. there I go like, well, that's really weird. I, I, I'm finding Nixie in the crossword puzzle an hour later and finding it in the psychology book I'm reading. And then that night uh, we were going to meet you and Dana for dinner. 
And uh, when we were there, I thought, well, I got to tell this to Chuck because he's got the psychology degree and he'll really get a kick out of it. And I mentioned this word Nixie. And then your uh, friend Dana says, they had a cat named Nixie Knox one time. And I thought, what? This is three yeah. times. This is too much. And so uh, anyway, I thought no more of it. We came home and I was just kind of like blown away by it. But so there's the a lot day, of examples like that in the world that it almost seems like these coincidences, like mathematically or out of like the odds of those things are, are very astronomical. I think so. I mean, those kind of things, definitely. And that, to get, before I finish the story, let me finish it first, I guess. So the next day or, you know, the Sunday after we had our dinner and I learned about the Nixie Knox, uh, by the way, that was a Dr. Seuss book, ABC, that mentions Nixie Knox. Right. I, I guess he's not a word, a name we can use. Oh. <laughs> Is that one on the <laughs> band list? Uh-oh. Yeah, you know, we're going to get canceled. We're going to get canceled. But uh, so on that Sunday, your mom and I went to breakfast. And um, as we were leaving the restaurant, there was a table of uh, family there with children. And your mom stopped to offer him a coupon we had because we were leaving to come home and we wouldn't be using the coupon. And I went out to the car. And when she came out, I said, oh, who are those people? And, you know, she said, oh, they're really nice. They're from blah, blah, blah. So what was their name? And their name was Knox. And I thought, oh, this is a cute scam. That's a Nixie. It took me from Nixie to Nixie Knox to Knox. You know, it was like the circle was completed. So, But do you think there's a reason for that? Like, did you say, did you say that synchronicity might be a way of the universe or other this other realm attempting to maybe communicate with us in some way? No, that's, that's something I strongly suspect. I think in the uh, Bible, you know, there's all these signs. You, you read about all the signs, this sign, this sign. There was a burning bush. There was a, a star that did this. Well, I think in today's, in this modern day, this technological day, the way that ultimate reality communicates with us is through things like synchronicity. When things happen to you over and over and over and over and over again, um, it's it's just a sign. It's telling you that I exist. I, this universe exists. This ultimate reality exists. And so that's just what I suspect. Again, I don't have a firm belief in it. You know, I'm kind of like Carl Jung. He said. I don't believe anything. I either know it or I'm still looking. Okay. So and, let, uh, yeah. So should we move into the next chapter here? This is, this yeah. is one we'll probably lose some people here, but evolution, this is so interesting okay. to me because I mean, I think it's interesting to everybody and it should be something that we always discuss and talk about. And I see so many of these debates on evolution on Facebook, which it seems like a great place to talk about it, but people seem so sure of themselves and they've never read Darwin's book. Now you've actually, I haven't read his book, so I, I don't know if I have a strong opinion on this one way or the other, or a strong belief, but you've read the book origin of species. And even you say that in his book, even Darwin himself points out flaws with the theory. Well, first of all, um, you know, I read on origin of species long, long time ago, but, uh, I, I read it because I thought, well, that would be really good to know. You know, where did the species originate from? That's probably a but good yeah. point out in the book. Right. And others have pointed out he never talks about the origin of species in the book. And the title <laughs> Which the is the title. Because that's what yeah. where where do things come from? Because if things evolve, they had to start with something. They can't just evolve out of nothing. And then explain this thing where it's like the, the, he talks about a, a bolt of lightning comes down and strikes this, what do you call it? Primordial goo. And they tried to do these experiments in the lab and they, they can't recreate it. So that's one problem with it, right? Yeah, that's one problem with it. I mean, there's so many problems with it. Um, yeah. The but there are some, goo. there is some, 
you do believe that some species have evolved because you talk about uh what is it lamarckism the offspring is born with a, a survival trait of the parents like these mice at mcgill university they were taught to um they were taught to fear something and then they had kids the mice had uh, the mice had the offspring and the, those offspring had the same fear that their parents had yeah so there's something going on there that's not passed through the genes and i think that's takes us into Sheldrake's uh, theory of uh, morphic resistance and morph the morphic field. Uh, there's something going on there. But uh, yeah, more important than that is you know, the primordial goo. That's like, there's always been this argument, evolution versus uh, intelligent design. And I try to point out in the book that those two are not, uh, they're not opposite of each other because uh, evolution starts with the thing that intelligent design argues for that is this stuff this primordial goo if you will uh, that could be that's that's a thing that starts the whole thing and you can't argue evolution and dismiss intelligent design because you're starting with an argument where you've got this assumption of something that you can't prove so it's an it's an invalid argument to uh to maintain that evolution explains how we got here and what we're doing here um but yeah there's things about evolution that, that make sense and, but there's a lot of stuff about it that nobody dare challenge, uh, especially unless they're tenured in the university. But what about uh, the big the Big Bang theory? About is that kind of how it started then, or did that have something to do with it? Well, see, nobody knows. Nobody knows. That's a theory they have. But um, it, it, the Big Bang had to, you know, somehow be engineered. Nothing you can't create, like you said earlier. You get right on it. You can't create something out of nothing. So where did the Big Bang come from? I mean, it doesn't just appear out of nowhere. It comes from somewhere, and that's the thing that we don't know the answer to. But there's a couple of things I want to point out about this chapter that make it interesting. One is pointing out, you know, why there's not necessarily such a divergence between intelligent design and uh, Darwinism or neo-Darwinism. And that is, if you take, if you went to a to a theater and you saw a magician put a, a gob of goo on a table and then cover it with cloths and say a few words and then uncover it, and there's a fully uh, grown human being, you'd say that's magic, especially if you could see under the table and there was no way this could be a trick. You'd say it's magic. But um, the evolutionary guys looking to see under the table, you know, how did this goo turn into this guy? And we're just saying, look, the thing is magic. Forget that. Either way, yeah. Dude, this is magic. Right. And so that's how I look at it, and I propose that. And so – the other thing in the evolutionary chapter is about a guy named Richard Dawkins, who's a real prime materialist, and he's a brilliant guy, evolutionary biologist, but um, he's got a closed mind. And, and, and there's two ways in which I bring this out. One is that uh, he makes a statement that the living uh, results of natural selection overwhelmingly impress us with the illusion of design and planning. You know, he he recognizes the phenomenon, but he wants to put the label illusion on it. Hmm. And the other thing that's interesting about Dawkins is he tried to prove his point by programming, programming a computer to generate random strings of letters. And he did that and a bunch of the, a bunch of real words came out of this program. And so he said, hmm. he argued, we'll say, look, the, uh, the randomness of all these letters, you can't, stuff will be constructed. And then he forgot to realize that he had programmed the computer to do this. So uh, kind of like, dude, this is not uh, supporting your position at all. Right. So, okay. 
All right. Well, so then the next chapter, uh, ubiquity of consciousness, and you talk about the three different theories of consciousness. So there's, I don't even know how to say this word, epiphenomenalism. 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 Is that, so that one says consciousness is solely just in the brain. And so that's saying like the brain can't interact with this invisible force, but you say that's false because your point is like a rock can interact with gravity and gravity is an uh, invisible force. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the thing is I start off that chapter mentioning that uh, nobody knows how to define consciousness. I mean, it's, there's just thousands and thousands of papers and lots and lots of books on consciousness. So you have to, you can get wrapped up in the details and listen to the philosophical arguments, some of which are, are are profound but that doesn't take you any closer to understanding trying to objectify something which is inherently subject. In other words, yeah, you can define that here's what happens. This, this, this data comes into my brain and, and that's what makes me blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make me love something. You know, those are uh, not, dis- not discernible in, uh, you know, objective reality. So, you know, I kind of, I kind of go over that stuff just to prepare everybody for, what's coming next in the last two chapters, Mm -hmm. uh, which is altered states of consciousness and then the continuation of consciousness. Yeah. But Um, so the other, the other uh, forms of consciousness are emergentism, which the mind emerged at some point in the level evolutionary history. And then pan physicism, which is saying that everything has a mental aspect. So, and then you kind of go into more uh, details about what those different things are, but uh, this is an interesting one. The brain is kind of a filter for perception. So like the brain is actually filtering out sensory information because there's so much stuff going on. And so the examples you use are like people, when people take hallucinogenic drugs or they have those near death experiences, people have these extreme moments of, of clarity, like where they might be taking off that filter for a minute and you can actually see some things that are, are actually there. Cause the theory is like, when you take the drugs, you're seeing things that aren't there, but maybe they're just taking the filter off and you're seeing the real, this other ultimate reality, right? I think that's right. I think um, it, there's just a lot of evidence that would point to the fact that uh, the, when you take these mind-altering drugs, you're you're reducing the effectiveness of the brain uh, as a filter, and so you're going to see things and experience things in a wholly different way. Of course, that leads us into the whole thing about near-death experiences and so on and so forth in the last chapter. But uh, one of the quotes is I have a geneticist in there that I quote that says that if amoeba, an amoeba was a large animal, and this guy studied, that's what he does. He studies these uh, sub, uh, you know, these really small, small living things like amoebas. And he said, if it was a large animal, its behavior would indicate states of pleasure, pain, hunger, desire, just as we attribute to a dog. So you can't stop when something's living at that low level and say, okay, this is, con- this is where consciousness manifests in life at this level, like a dog or a mm-hmm. cat. It, it his basically his point, and I put a lot of a lot of research in, into this you know, that I bring out in the book. There's a lot of citations. There's like 490 citations in the book. So if you want to, if somebody wants to investigate further, there's plenty of. Uh, well, yeah. Sources. So one example that you have is a this kid who he literally had no brain, but he had 126 IQ. So I mean, you can't just say that consciousness is in the brain because this kid didn't have a brain, but somehow he's still able to function. Yeah, he was functioning at a high level. He had a an IQ. Of, this is John Lorber um, that did this work. He was mm-hmm. a, a neurophysicist, 
the guy had a, an IQ of 126, but when they in first class honors degree in math, uh, and when they and he was completely normal socially, and when they cut his brain open or his head open, his skull open, they found that he had uh, almost no brain, four and a half centimeters of brain, mostly filled with uh, brain fluid, cerebrospinal fluid, and uh, another another guy, a neurophysicist at the Mediterranean University in Paris, had a similar experience. He he found a guy that. Um, he had a lower IQ. He had about an 80 IQ, but he was, uh, he was self, you know, he was employed. He had a job, he had a family and he was doing fine, but he had virtually no brain. Hmm. Well, both of these things, if you research them and I give you references, you'll find there's a lot of criticisms of those, but there's nobody that says, Hey, this is something we need to look into. (laughs) We need to, we need to do some more investigation. I mean, that's pretty Uh, fascinating. And then this is another example that, um, that explains that maybe some of this stuff is not in the brain because you, you uh, point out this example of this lady who uh, she was a lesbian and then she got a heart transplant from somebody who was a straight person. And then she became straight and she married a man and had kids because of, because of this heart transplant. I mean, it, it would appear on the surface. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm not taking a position one way or the other. I'm just presenting a lot of research. There's a, there's another lady who was a, a, she considered herself to be McDonald's biggest customer, but she had the transplant from someone who was a vegetarian. And after that transplant, she just found anything to do with meat repulsive. And so uh, these are documented cases. So it's like they're saying memories are stored in the organs or you're saying they're not even stored in the organs, but maybe in these invisible fields. And this goes into like quantum physics, which then this gets really above my head. Well, and I try to break it down, but, um, the, the Arizona University of Arizona is currently uh, looking at 300, doing a study of 300 transplant cases to determine if there's any validity to this. So you got to give them credit for at least investigating. We don't know what's going to come out of that research, but but dismissing it as worthy of burning is just mm-hmm. probably the worst solution you can come up with. Arizona, the University of Arizona is doing an investigation, and will will someday be published what they found on that, but. Uh, that's the only way that you're going to make any progress in the world is by abandoning um, the paradigm that says, no, this can't be true right. because it doesn't square with our paradigm and do some investigation. Right. Well, that's why, like you said, you have so many examples. So, and then, and when you talk about the animals, you know, you talk about how dogs have human qualities, you know, pets have these bonds, but then at even a smaller level, the termites, you talk about this example of termites, um, explain this thing with the queen and how they, I'll let you tell it. I, I probably screwed up. So, so somebody did this research with uh, termites and they found that, uh, you know, there's like thousands and thousands of termites and they're, they're working in sync. They're doing everything and they're, you know, constructing these mm-hmm. elaborate nests and they have a queen. And so the, the idea was, uh, you know, well, that's got to be pheromones. The queen exerts these pheromones and that's what's directing these guys. So somebody said, well, let's see if that's true. So, um, in a couple of different instances, in one case, they buried a big steel bar, a big steel wall between the queen and the workers. And they found that the, the workers went on just as they did. Well, pheromones, you know, they don't travel through steel. So that kind of blocked the, the pheromone study. So then they did another thing. They killed the queen. And they found that the workers didn't know what to do. They were totally disorganized and everything fell apart. In the So there was something going on from the queen to the workers, which was not a pheromone, 
And uh, when the queen was killed, the workers didn't know what to do. They, they went, uh, the, the nest was destroyed, basically. So that so was, might be, in, well, again, one of these uh, other fields or other realms. Yeah, I think that can support the idea of maybe um, there's something going on there from a field, a field that, that, that circulates around the queen that is giving all this stuff. And it's, it's uh, goes through steel. I mean, it doesn't have anything yeah. steel. And, uh, you know, that, but that's, again, I, I give a lot of authorities and references and papers uh, cited there if someone has more interest in looking into that further. But to me, that all I'm trying to do is point out that um, challenge stuff when people tell you. Yeah. You can do and here's thing. another example, too, that you give of this um, dissociative identity dis- disorder or otherwise formerly known as multiple personality disorder. So people will go into these other uh, identities or personalities and they'll speak different language. Medical issues will be solved. Like there, you, you give an example of a lady who had a lazy eye. And then when she was yeah. a different personality or identity, the lazy eye was gone. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and there's, you know, there's, and again, I, I start that chapter, that discussion out saying, you know, there's a lot of doctors and psychiatrists that say that that phenomenon is, doesn't exist. And I, I want to point that out and be a, you know, be forthright, but there's some evidence given there where they've done tests to see, you know, they can put brain tests on, they can see if this guy, and the guy can speak languages that he never learned when he's got this other person. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff. I find it really interesting. The phenomenon's interesting. What the answer to that is. Yeah, we don't know what, but there's something going on. So Something going on. Yeah, so then in chapter six, you go into this a little bit more with the altered states of consciousness. And uh, dreams, obviously, that's one example. Um, but there was one quote that, uh, I taught or you, so this was a quote that you had. If we assume that atoms have no physical properties as Heisenberg had claimed and acknowledged that molecules are comprised of atoms and that we in turn are comprised of molecules. Do we have any physical properties? You say it's not a leap in logic to conclude that the claims of dualism may be false, but in an unexpected way, there may be no material realm at all. Like our perceptive reality may be illusory. So basically, I think what way I understand this is like we're living in the matrix is what you're saying. You say it's not only well, possible, it's highly probable. I yeah, I make that statement in the book. I, I quote a bunch of you know knowledgeable people. I'm not saying this. I don't know anything about the physics behind it, but knowledgeable physics um, professors and researchers have looked at the possibility of we're living in a matrix and they've said it's not only likely, it's very probable. So draw your own conclusions. You can read the papers. I've recited them in the, in the book, uh, but I found it to be quite fascinating. And I've also seen some programs on uh, Joe Rogan where, you know, that subject is, is talked about. And, uh, and some of the people that are adamant that we are living in a matrix have some pretty convincing arguments. So, you know, more so to consider, just more to consider. So that's one theory. And then, you know, some of these, uh, the, the ways that we visit this other realm, whatever you want to call it. I mean, like you said, dreams, and then out-of-body experiences. So th- uh, there's theories that maybe dreams and out-of-body experiences are kind of the same thing. But what is, what is it? How do you describe an out-of-body experience? Is that like is that different than near-death experience? Well, a near-death experience often incorporates an out-of-body experience, um, but not always. And so, an out-of-body experience is when you have the experience of having left your body, and you can see, oftentimes, see your body, and uh, you can travel around and do all kinds of stuff. And there's, you know, I mean, this is, this is, we're out here in kind of difficult to prove uh, scenarios, but there's some evidence that people have 
claim to have left their body and gone places where they've been able to see things that existed, which they couldn't have seen, except that they weren't there in spirit. They weren't there in body, sometimes much, much farther away. So, again, there's something going on there, what that phenomenon is. You know, I don't know, but it's a mystery. And again, it's more evidence that this ultimate reality is is a fact and not just a fiction. What is this Um, thing? I I just... uh... Uh, noticed this part of the book where uh, there was Stafford, Stafford Betty, is that her name? She, she said there was Alzheimer's patients who were able to speak rationally just before they died, having never, you know, having been, you know, mute or, or, you know, having problems for years, being able to be rational. Then right before they die, all of a sudden, it's almost like they're cured of Alzheimer's. Well, so interestingly, uh, a lot of people, when they have a near death experience, they say they have this period of which is everything becomes so clear and so real. And I mean, uh, in all the books and all the reports from near-death experiences, many, many people have claimed that the near-death experience itself is more real than the reality we live in. And I found that to be quite interesting that that it's kind of a thread that goes through so many of these reports. Well, then we come back to, you know, this uh, near-death experience where the person on the deathbed, death is imminent. They haven't been able to talk or communicate or recognize people for years, but they have this period of lucidity right before they pass, where they're able to not only talk and identify, but carry on a conversation, which they've been in a vegetative state, you know, conscious, awake, but but unable to speak or recognize people. And that occurs right there, right right on the bed before they die. And uh, yeah, there's there's case after case of that occurring. And so, yeah, and this was... This was a unique case too. talking about near death experiences. This guy was a cardiologist, Dr. Michael Sambaum and the, the case of Pam Reynolds, she had blood drained from her head. Her body temperature was lowered to 60 degrees and she had the classic near death experience. She had the tunnel, the bright light, uh, you know, uh, she saw distant relatives, but it was a unique case because the doctor confirmed there was no way that brain activity was possible. Cause that's what they always say that, Oh, your brain is hallucinating all these things. But the doctor's saying, there's no way that the brain was working. We, we drained her head of blood and she was at 60 degrees. She was not alive. Yeah, no, I know. And that's, that's, uh, so how do they explain yeah. that? Well, they basically deny it. Okay. They say, okay, well, you know, that's basically what they do. They just, they're in denial. But this but is a, this guy's other, a cardiologist and he's saying there's no way that the brain could have been working. Yeah, I know. But then there's another cardiologist down the street that uh, doesn't have <laughs> tenure yet. And he's already getting him. But, no, but some of the things, some of the things that's so interesting to me in the near death experiences uh, that are reported is some people have come out of the near death experience and they've said that they visited deceased relatives and so on. But in some cases, not a lot. But again, uh, you only need to find one that's real, right? I mean, that uh-huh. was what William James said, to find out that not all crows are black. You just need to find one white crow. You don't have to find a whole bunch of them. But in this one case that I'm uh, thinking of that's in the book, um, people came back from this near-death experience and said someone, they saw so-and-so who had died, but person had the near-death experience didn't know they had died but now they see them in their near-death experience so they they had died but they didn't know that so they couldn't make this up you know this is a person who how would they not death. know like be... well because the person just died oh the, oh so, that's interesting yeah. timing then yeah 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 so there's this 
So they're seeing somebody that they, they said, well, so-and-so was there and, you know, but how could that be? And then somebody said, but he did, he died yesterday or something. So there's those, wow. they're cited, it's, they're in the book. Um, and again, it's like, I don't know if you can draw any for sure conclusion, but it it warrants further investigation. For there, sure. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing about the near-death experiences to me is that uh, a common theme, obviously, besides the white light and seeing relatives, is that people didn't want to come back. Like they're angry when they are resuscitated. They're like, no, I want to go back to that near death experience. Yeah. Like whatever. Yeah, so that's... that makes you kind of not afraid of death so much that, and again, that could be the brain releasing some chemical that's making you feel high or hallucinate or whatever. I and mean, that's the other theory behind it, right? Right. I mean, that's what the, that's what the materialists would argue is that it's this brain uh, you know, gasping for oxygen and coming up with all these hallucinations. But these are not hallucinations. These are seeming more real than real. Now, it's not doesn't sound like a hallucination to me. So, again, it it, it warrants uh, more consideration and more investigation. But all I'm doing is pointing out that uh, the answer that we've been given, that it's just the brain doing this and that, doesn't really square with the work on the guy that had 124 IQ and no brain. I mean, what was his brain doing? Yeah. Or the lady whose brain was, you know, drained of all the blood. And so, yeah, there's another uh, example. So, so then chapter uh, seven, the continuation of consciousness transcendence that's temporarily entering this alternate realm. And then there's that theory. And then the immortality that is that you go to this other realm for eternity, but eternity is kind of outside the idea of space and time. Like there's no beginning and an end. Right. So that, I mean, that kind of messes with your head. Just trying to think about that. Yeah. I mean, it, it really does. But the thing is, it, it really kind of, in a way, there's a lot of things about that that agree with these experiences and a near death experience, because it seems to me that one could make the argument that in a near death experience, your consciousness goes into this other realm, your body stays here, you're still connected, but the, the consciousness is there. And why do I suggest that? Because some of these people will see their whole life in an instant pass before their their eyes in their near-death experience, and they will say things like, time and space don't exist where I was. They, that's oh. reported by the people who've had these near-death experiences. So uh, it's hard to get your mind around it. It's very impossible. Yeah, think, what is that? When you see, I have heard that before. I've heard that term where it's like your life flashes before your eyes. How do your you see life. your entire life in one second or whatever it is? Like, how is that because, even possible? Because it's outside of time. And it's kind of like this. Uh, there's, uh, so do you uh, remember things that maybe you thought you'd forgotten and then all these memories come back to you? Because I'm guessing there's a lot of things in my life that I don't remember. But then all of a sudden, do you remember everything? Well, that's what they're telling us. You know, that's the huh. people that have come back. Uh, um, but, you know, it's kind of like. And I'm looking at this for the, the second book. I'm looking at the perception of time. It's I've got a lot of research done on it. It's still a very, very complicated area. But when you they've measured time with lucid dreamers, and they found that the times reported by lucid dreamers are pretty cons consistent with the objective time that we live in, because they'll have them do like push-ups or sit-ups or something, and they'll time somebody outside in the real world doing it, and somebody that's flipping their eye, their uh, winking to signal they're in. Uh, a lucid dream and doing the same thing. And the time's not really that far off, but there's a lot of reports of people that weren't having lucid dreams, but had dreams in which, you know, eons passed. And there was, you know, it was, a, a you know, maybe a second or two. 
Isn't that kind of so, like that uh, when people take that drug, the DMT? It's kind of a similar kind of thing. You take this DMT and and they're on DMT for ten minutes or something, but when they come out of it, they they think they think they were gone for years. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Exactly. Because again, perhaps their consciousness with the a DMT, perhaps their consciousness has crossed that threshold to the uh, ultimate reality that's behind the doors of perception. And is another way to get into the. Uh, there's other ways to to maybe kind of explore this other realm, like besides drugs and dreams, meditation and hypnosis, are those kind of ways that you can maybe touch some of that? Well, I know that you, uh, you studied hypnosis. You a took little bit. A, yeah. A, yeah. A little bit. So, you know, you're aware of some of it. I'm kind of uh, leery about accepting reports from uh, people that have been, you know, reporting prior lives after they've been put under hypnosis. I'm not discounting it hundred percent, but, you know, I just put it over there as something to think about. But uh, meditation, for sure, from what I've read, people that have done the deep meditation um, who have really crossed that threshold uh, of consciousness and have, have reported back many of the same things that are reported in near-death experiences. Really? And, uh, and like with the drugs, too, then? Like you would think that you yeah. could get to that meditative state by meditating. It would be almost like you're on drugs or having dreams or near-death experience. Yeah, it would take you to that other, that ultimate reality. But wow. one thing I want to mention that, that's from that last chapter is Dr. Moody's psychomanium. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, he was my professor in my uh, master's class. And uh, he got the idea for this psychomanium by going to Greece. And he found that uh, doing a lot of research in Greece, he found that, uh, that they'd gone to this place where they contacted the dead. And he, he saw this big vat and he thought perhaps they had filled it with water and were using it as a reflectory. So he came back and he constructed what he calls a psychomanium, which is a small room with a mirror in front of you. Maybe the room's 12 feet long and there's a small mirror in front of you tilted upward so you can't see your reflection and a dim light behind the chair. And then you're prepped before you go in there to think about the person who's passed away that you want to contact. And uh, you're, you know, you show a lot of pictures, you review a lot of stuff. And so you kind of get this person firmly in your mind and then you go into this room and what's been and it's been reproduced in several different universities. So I think there's something there. But these people that have experienced it uh, in the most uh, significant way have said that the person it, all of a sudden a cloud forms in the mirror, and this person's you know his appearance uh, they can see it clearly and they can communicate with this person. And in some cases, and this is I give this in the book, and you can also. Uh, read Dr. Moody's book, Reunions, which is a more detailed explanation of it. But in some of these uh, cases, the apparition that's in the mirror actually comes out of the mirror and is in the room. And uh, there's been these uh, investigations by Dr. Dean Radin, who's put mechanical devices and sensors and stuff in the room to try and see if they can pick that up. And they haven't had a lot of success with that, but there's been something that's been detected. So, you know, more, more work, again, more work needs to be done. But that's something when you get a report from medical doctors, psychiatrists who were in the room and they had this experience, you know that it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. And Carl Jung called it these kind of apparitions projections of the psyche. But in a later edition of his book, he said, no, nah, I don't think it is that. I think there's something real there. So, so is that, so is this like ghosts then? Like how, or how do you explain ghosts and Ouija boards? Is this contacting people from the other realm? Like, is that the other realm communicating with us or is this dead spirits or what? We, I mean, how do you define this stuff? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And certainly deserving of another book. But uh, somebody else will have to write that one. No, it's uh, there's a lot written on it. And there's a lot of information. But like William James said, you know, he said, I've got an open mind on this. But uh, there's got to be a lot more proof before I buy it. That's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm not really, I don't really feel I need to know whether that's true or not. But it's an interesting fact I put over to the side to decide whether or not it's uh, bears. So do you think, do you think like exorcisms and like demon possession, is that faked or is that, is that a case of a dissociative identity disorder or is that a case of this other realm or this other reality? I'm not an expert in those areas, but I'd say that you hit on it. I think you could probably find some connection to dissociative identity disorder and exorcisms that make, make some sense. I really do. I think the possibility of that needs to be uh, explored. But also, uh, but, there's just, but isn't dissociative identity disorder, that may be a connection to that other realm as well. So maybe it's, it's kind of all, it's all right then. Well, so you get into a guy named Bernardo Castro wrote, uh, has written a lot of books and he's a very smart guy. He's got a, a doctorate in computer science and a doctorate in philosophy. So, you know, he's worthy to investigate, but he thinks there's one consciousness, a universal consciousness, and we all participate in that mm-hmm. to some degree. So what's going on with the dissociative identity disorder is there's two uh, manifestations of the same consciousness, of, of, of a consciousness in one body. So oh. I'm supposed to have one consciousness, one manifestation of this universal consciousness, and you're supposed to have one. Somehow things get screwed up, and now I've got two manifestations in my body. So I don't, I don't know, you huh. know. But that there's that's a lot interesting. of that makes sense. That, okay, that's an interesting that way to sense. yeah to look at it. So then, <laughs> if there is this ultimate reality, and again, you don't say you know what it is. You don't know what religion, if it's a religious thing or if it's totally if it's a scientific thing, a quantum physics. I mean, it's it could be all these different theories. But you don't talk about like the religion role of it in terms of like heaven and hell, like that concept is not even discussed in your book. So do you, do you believe if there is an ultimate reality, is there, is there different realms of it? Is there like a happy ultimate reality and a sad ultimate reality, or is it all just one place? I just, I feel like, you know, uh, Occam's razor is, you know, don't multiply things beyond necessity. I think there's one ultimate reality. You don't go to need to go to multiverses and all that. Some physicists have argued that everything can be explained if you think of multiple universes, uh, that's complicating it beyond what needs to be done. Um, but I think there's one ultimate reality. And I think um, people that do, you know, horrible things, they may not be aware of those things. But when they become aware of them, and when they're in the ultimate reality, and they relive those and perceive the effect that those actions had on people in in the objective reality, when they feel the, the pains, then that's their own personal hell that they have to go through. I think there's some, some argument that could be made for that. And do you think that's an eternity thing or do you think that they. Well, there's learn? no time. I, I mentioned in the book, I oh. said, what does eternity mean? If we're beyond space and time. So that's I don't true. know. <laughs> that's kind of scary. So be a good person is what the lesson is there. You know, there's one important thing out of the Bible. There's a lot of good things in the Bible, but there's one that I think you should, everybody should at least try to live up to. And that is the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And if you do that, you can't be too far wrong. And so is that, is that kind of the point of like, what is after all this, 
you know, research that you've done and, and you've lived a very full life. Like, what is the point? What is the meaning of life? Like, how should we spend our days on earth? I mean, if it sounds like the near death experience, people are saying, Hey, death is great. Like, so, but then we still have this time on earth. So then why are we here? What's the point? Well, we're here, I think, to learn how to love. I think that everybody that's come back from these experiences, whether they've been near-death experiences or on, on drugs, and I, and I point this out in the book, they come back and they say, the most important thing is love. You know, And so if you learn to love, if you can really learn to love, and you can have the good fortune to experience love, I think that's the reason you're here, and you'll take that with you. Romantic love or, or family love or friend love or... I don't think there's a discrimination. I think love is love or love of like, like if I love podcasting, is that like love of something you do or all that? I think love of other living organisms and respect for life of other living things. If you, again, if you treat not only every person you meet as you'd like to be treated, but if you treat every living thing as you'd like to be treated, were you that living thing? I think you can't go too far wrong. Well, you talk about that. We, we talk about that in the consciousness of plants. Yeah. So then so if that's true, then I shouldn't even be eating salads because I might be. Well, I think some of the plants, you know, that's their, that's their goal. That's their objective on, on earth. I don't think it is necessarily with animals, but I think with plants, their goal is to feed uh, the living things that are, um, you know, uh, making their way around the earth. I think they're, uh, you know, and, you know, but I think to do it with reverence that you should be thinking of not you don't do you don't start stuff on fire and burn stuff just willy-nilly you think you you do it with reverence that's basically the message that comes from some of these eastern religions which i Mm. think has some validity okay and then um so this is a another concept that you didn't talk about in the book but i know you've studied this what is the role with aliens with all this do you believe in aliens is do our aliens play a part are aliens in space are they in the inner earth are they just in that other realm where they travel through the different dimensions or what is is what are your thoughts on that you know i've read a lot because again being curious yeah and i love it when people come out and say there's absolutely no no alien no aliens there's no alien life there's no ufos don't exist uh, i just love that because i know that Whenever somebody's so adamant about something that they can't prove, that means there's something interesting there. You got to find out what that interesting thing is. Well, well because Elon Musk, who's the guy who's going to you know build this big space station and go to Mars and all this, but he doesn't even think that there's aliens. He thinks there's a very high probability that there isn't. Because if there is, like, we would have seen him by now. Hey, he's the guy that's buying Bitcoin. So what does that say? <laughs> you know, he had a stick to making his cars. But, uh, well, the thing is, I do think that... Uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, who was the French guy that they imaged when they made uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kinds, Spielberg used uh, the role model of Jacques Vallée for the French guy that was in that movie. And Jacques Vallée is a brilliant guy. Um, and he's, he thinks it's, it's, a, it's a physical and a psychic thing. And I think Carl Jung had the same, he actually wrote a paper on Carl Jung, and he had the same idea. And I think, I think that's true with, uh, with all of us that we're going to find that there's a, there's an ability to transfer back and forth between this ultimate realm and the objective world we live in. And uh, well, there's, there's so much evidence for the physical manifestation. I mean, Dr. Fravor or not Dr. Commander Fravor, the Navy pilot who tracked the tic-tac, you know, UFO uh, traveling at 
thousands of miles an hour, physically impossible to do with the technology we have, just tells you there's something going on there. I don't know what it is, but um, it would make sense that it would have something to do with this ultimate reality where time and space don't exist. Hmm. Uh, that's my theory. Wow. Well, that'd be cool to see that. And uh, I mean, I guess we're all going to find out someday because we're all going to die. And so we're going to find out what the answer is at that point. Right. I mean, I'm assuming you, you learn at that, at that point. Yeah. You hope, you hope that um, but the other thing is it could be just nothing. Could, yeah. You, know, you could just die disappear. and then you're just, that's it. You're it's, it's just like go to black, like a uh, fade to black, like before you were born, where were you, what were you doing before you were born? You don't remember that. It was just, well, that's what Schopenhauer, it's one of the quotes in the book, uh, when somebody said, you know, what happens when he dies? He said, you just go back to where you were before you were born. That kind of shuts him up. So, I don't know. Right. But that could be that, that could be that ultimate reality, or it could just be nothingness, which is kind of yeah. scary if you think about it. Yeah. Well, nothingness is not painful. That's true. So that, At least you're not suffering. Other. So people talk about that. And they, when they use that as an example, they say, what's the best sleep you ever had? And it's the dreamless sleep. Um, yeah. The most the most enjoyable sleep is the dreamless sleep. So if it's that, uh, but I kind of you know you have to. Carl Jung made a, a comment in his dreams, uh, in his biography, and uh, he said everybody should have a myth about what happens after death. And so I have a myth, and I don't, and I'm not subscribing to it and trying to convince anybody. But I think it could be a state of existence where it's like a lucid dream, hmm. where you construct the world that you're living in, and. Uh, Maybe that's why these people that have near-death experiences don't want to come back because they've constructed a world that they think is really wonderful. So wow. that'd anyway, be amazing. It'd be amazing to be able to create your dream in, in on Earth. That would be kind of fun too if you could. Yeah, you know, you know, really, I read a lot about suffering, and except for the fact that people have real cause for suffering when they have no place to live and they don't have enough food and they don't have adequate medical care, most of the suffering is mental. And if you can change your, you know, if you can use your imagination and change your outlook, um, you can create the world you want to live in. I've told one client of ours who was always worried about everything he was seeing on the news, he just hated the period of time he's living in, you know, he's in his 80s. And I said, well, all you have to do is buy a 1950s car and watch Turner Classic movies on TV and don't pay attention to the news, and you're living in the 50s. <laughs> and just forget yeah. it, because that's you, you can create the world you want to live in. That's a good point. All right. Well, this stuff is fascinating. Um, we should probably wrap up, though. Um, I do like to end with a charity. I think you mentioned Baby Corner. Can you explain to the audience? Eastside Baby Corner in Issaquah is our charity. And, uh, you know, they do wonderful things for children, and it's all volunteers and uh, anything anybody can. And people donate uh, not just uh, diapers, but like baby, like strollers and toys. And I mean, they just have a, last time I went, it was a giant, almost like a warehouse of things and people can come and, and just say, Hey, I need this, this. And then they just go and find it in their a warehouse. They got to go through a, a, a provider. So they've been qualified. People yeah. Can't yeah. Come in there. But um, people, we donate, you know, people donate money to the organization so they can buy diapers and formula for kids. And uh, it's a really worthwhile charity. That's great. And then, um, Thanks, what are your uh, follow-up plans? You ha are you going to be doing another book or on like a totally different subject or more into this uh, deep dive into this subject or? Well, so uh, the research I'm doing now is on time perception. As I mentioned, it's, it's really, there's so much more to that than I'd ever envisioned. So whether that will be a, an addendum to the book, uh, you know, a second edition uh -huh. or a separate book, I'm not sure at this point, but uh, I'm just enjoying the research. That's what I enjoy. <laughs> 
Yeah, you've done a lot. Like we said, 496 citations in this book. So it's not just your opinion or something you crafted out of, out of thin air. You've done the research on this book for sure. So, Yeah. I know what I'm trying to do is open everybody's mind, um, not convince them of anything in particular, but just to have them consider that there are some alternatives to the materialistic paradigm. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, I'll see Jeff. you for dinner in a couple a couple of days or a week or so. Yeah, this has been good rehearsal when I get that call from Oprah. Yeah, or Joe Rogan. Rogan. I think you should go on Rogan. Joe Rogan. All right. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. So there you have it. You may have had some questions answered, or you may have more questions to ask now. But get the book, read it all the way through. We really just scratched the surface with a lot of this stuff. And really check the sources on the book. Again, it's 496 sources. And these are very well-respected people that he's referencing, uh, some of the most brilliant minds of our times. And I truly think my dad is a brilliant mind, and I love having these deep discussions with him, and I'm glad we were able to record this. And he may be writing more books, uh, but make sure in the meantime to buy the book on Amazon, give him a good review, and that will help him out a lot. Um, Thank you so much for listening, and remember, shoot for the moon.